so good to see you. I, once again, I'm compelled to give thanks um, for a couple of reasons. Thanks to Brother Jeff for entrusting the pulpit to me this morning. And thank you for being willing to listen to me this morning. That may be the greater amazing thing. But, you know, preparation for preaching is, is a means of grace to me, and it aids in my sanctification, and, and that's why I give thanks. And the act of preaching itself is worship for me. So I just want you to know that it's not lost on me uh, that you allow me to be here and preach to you. Um, if you would turn in your Bibles to John chapter 12, we're going to look at the second half of verse 36 down through verse 50. And I realize as I look down, I need my glasses. There it is. So if you'd read along with me, starting in the second half of verse 36, this is what John records for us. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him, so that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. And Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world." The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord given to us for our good. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you this morning for the privilege of reading your word and taking it in. But Father, as is the temptation so many times, we want to come to your word and stand over it and pick at it rather than be under it and be pressed down and be changed. And that's our prayer this morning, that the weight of your word would fall upon us and you would sanctify us by your truth. Lord, guide us, and may you reveal your strong arm this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, the first thing I want you to notice is we've read through that. I want you to notice, and I never really point this out when I do have the privilege of preaching to you, is the title that I have given this sermon, Theology of Unbelief. In light of, consider that in light of what we have seen in this gospel, in John 20, 30, well, we will see in this gospel, but has been referenced in John 20, 31, John's purpose in writing this gospel is that we believe that Jesus is the Christ, and in believing in him, we would have life in his name. That and also 
the repeated and continual commands by Jesus himself to repent and believe the gospel. That is this book's purpose. And that purpose stands. You need to remember that as we work through this passage and consider a theology of unbelief. And what I hope we will see as we work through that is the glory of a better question. And you'll, you'll see what the question is in just a moment. So this is very important to keep in mind. So hang on to and understand that the staggering truth that will be revealed to us in this passage in no way diminishes the necessity, responsibility, and continued call to repent and believe the gospel. Do not forget that. Because this passage is heavy. Okay? So, what we find here, it's interesting. This, this section is an intermission in the Gospel of John. Theologians have often divided, and you can tell as you, as you read through the Gospel, divided this Gospel into two books. The book of signs or miracles, which is chapters 1 through 12, which we have worked through. And then the book of glory, which is chapters 13 through 21. So right here is the intermission in between those two books. So John steps out of the historical narrative here and is telling us, let's consider what has just happened in order to prepare us for what's getting ready to happen. Because John slows down here in the gospel. It's, it's amazing. And I would argue that I said this is... This is editorial comment by John. He steps out of the historical narrative. And I would argue that even that last section where we have Jesus speaking is editorial comment by John. That he has compiled the sayings of Jesus regarding the gospel to get us to consider what is at stake with this issue of belief and unbelief. As he prepares us to get into chapter 13 and to move forward. So we are four days from the cross here when Jesus, at the second half of verse 36, hides himself. As, as, the, as the scripture says here, he, he leaves. And that's a significant turning point, as we shall see. But he slows down, and the remaining chapters of this gospel cover the final night of Jesus' life, the horror of his death, the stunning glory of his resurrection. I mean, he spends five chapters on the upper room discourse alone, his celebrating of Passover and, and what I believe is a transforming of Passover into communion with God. He spends five chapters on that, chapters 13 through 17. 18, you have his betrayal and arrest. 19, you have his crucifixion. And then 20 and 21, you have his resurrection and appearances to the disciples. So he slows way down. He's covered, covered several years in chapters 1 through 12, and he covers just a few days in the last part of this gospel, the last half of this gospel. So it's, it's amazing that he wants us to really slow down with him and consider what's happening. And what we'll find as we work through this is that the answer to the question that John wants us to consider, which is a, a question of unbelief, by consequence, the answer to that question answers the better question, which is the question of belief. Now, this, this message, this sermon is front-weighted, okay? We're going to spend the majority of the time looking at this first point. So when we've been at it a while and you think he's not even through the first point, don't get scared. It's going to be okay. 
So look at uh, verses 36 through 43, the second half of 36 through 43. And we're going to talk about what we have seen to this point. Okay? And the layout of this section is staggering because this marks the dramatic shift in John's gospel and in the ministry of Jesus. So it's clear that John stops recounting here the historical narrative. He hits the pause button and wants to draw our attention to, st- to something that he is astounded by. And, and what he's astounded by, he will make clear in verse 37. So what he's going to do here is pull back the curtain and allow us to peek into the hidden and hallowed counsel of God. And it will instruct us, now hear this, it will instruct us to the reality that God is glorified not only in the salvation of his people, but in the judgment of the wicked. Okay? Look at verse 36. He departed and hid himself. There it is. That marks the end of the public ministry of Jesus and his turning his attention to his disciples to prepare them for what is about to take place. That's where we end up in John 13, that that upper room, that celebration of Passover being turned into communion with God. He's preparing them for what's about to happen. Now, John brings up an issue that surely the astute reader of the gospel has pondered from time to time as, as we've worked through this. And that's in verse 37. And the issue is stunning unbelief. Did you, did you catch what he said there? As he, as he departs the historical narrative where it says, Jesus, after he said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Now, he's in Jerusalem. He's been speaking with the Jews there. And think of all he has done. If we call the first half of this gospel the book of signs, think of the things he has done in the midst of the people. The turning of water into wine the raising of Jairus' daughter, the raising of Lazarus. So many things, the gracious teaching and preaching and healing and loving and being with the people. So he leaves and hides himself so he can now focus on his disciples. But then John says this, though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe him. Why would John just as an editorial comment, bring that issue up because, it, because it's significant. We have to think about it. Jesus has been in front of these people doing so many things, and yet so many have not believed him. So John seems to be stunned by this reality. So the question, has the gospel failed? I mean, hasn't Jesus been preaching to those whose hearts are hungry for the promised one to come and set them free, whether or not they understand what being set free totally means at that time? Aren't they waiting for the promised one? So has the gospel failed? That's, that's a tough question. And, you know, we know the answer to that immediately. But that's sort of the question that's being posed as this. What explains the unbelief of so many? That's the surface question that I think John is getting at here. What explains this unbelief? And once we consider the answer to that question, I think we will see the glorious, better question. And it is this. What explains the belief of any? See, the wrong question would be, why do so many not believe? And I think John is getting us to consider that so we would get to the point where we would say, why do any believe? What explains the belief of anyone, any man, woman, or child? So to deal with this issue, 
the surface question of, of unbelief, he quotes from Isaiah, Isaiah 53.1 and Isaiah 6.10. And that is extremely significant. I know that I say that a lot. Extremely significant. That's probably going to be on my tombstone. But I don't know how to express that, that you've, you've got to catch that him quoting from these two passages means everything. And the context that those quotes come from, which we'll look at, means everything when we consider how could he do so many things? How could he stand before them and they not believe? So many signs that he had done. And what we'll see is Isaiah 53.1 deals with the issue of human responsibility and divine sovereignty. Isaiah 6.10 will deal with the issue of the glory and holiness of God in his judgment. So this is where John is driving us to. So... When you look at verse 38, I, I think it's significant that he quotes from the prophet Isaiah and he names the prophet he's quoting from to get us to consider this question of unbelief and sovereignty. I mean, the prophecy of Isaiah is full of messianic hope and expectancy. I mean, when we get to 53.1, this is the song of the suffering servant who will bear the sin of his people and sprinkle many nations. This is the one he wants us to see. And that's what drives his question. This is the one. And they don't believe. And he's done so much. How can that be? So note his editorial comment before he gets into quoting that verse. When he says he had done so many signs before them there in verse 37, still they did not believe. Look at verse 38. So that... So that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. So what you have to catch there is that this unbelief has purpose. And it has purpose. What we'll see as we work through this is that the unbelief that comes about has its greater purpose in bringing about God's ultimate purpose. And we don't like to think about that, but this is what is happening here. They don't believe so that this word might be fulfilled. There's purpose behind this unbelief. So John is saying, if you want to understand what I'm getting at here, you must bow the knee to divine wisdom. This is what I meant when I was praying. You know, I, I so often want to stand over God's word and pick at it. And preachers are bad about that because we love to, to pull apart and exegete and diagram and all that stuff. But the reality is we need to lay under it and let it press down on us and form us. So the question that Isaiah asks in Isaiah 53.1 is, Lord, who has believed what he heard from us and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? So who has believed what he heard from us? The key word there is believed. That's human responsibility. Who's responsible for believing? The one who has been called to believe. And then that secondary question, which answers the first, by the way, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? The key word there is the word revealed. Who reveals in this context? God himself. That is divine sovereignty. So here, human responsibility and divine sovereignty are laid down side by side. Not pitted against one another, but beautifully laid side by side. When asked how he reconciled divine sovereignty and human responsibility, 
Charles Spurgeon said, I do not reconcile friends. And that's a good word. So consider Isaiah 53.1. I mean, notice that, that that's one phrase and there's one question mark at the end of that phrase because that, those are one in the same question, essentially. Each question answers the other in a perfect circle of the beauty of God's grace and mercy. Who has believed? The ones to whom the arm of the Lord has been revealed. To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? We know who they are because they have believed in that revelation. This is why he writes this. One cannot happen without the other. And just to, to make sure we get that point, as John is explaining the unbelief of these people, look at verse 39. And this is where it um, really hits us between the eyes. Therefore, they could not believe. What? Is that fair? I mean, that's... That's, if you're like me, that's where the stubborn human heart goes immediately. That's the question it asks. That's not fair. What what does that mean? They could not believe. It means what it says. They could not believe. So I found in the early years of, of my walk with Christ that I was prone to redefine who God was and what he could do in order to protect who I thought I was and what I should have the ability to do. In other words, I would take away God's prerogatives to preserve what I thought were mine. And it was a hard lesson learned when I realized I, I can't do that. God is who he is. He does as he pleases for his glory and for the good of his people. And he doesn't call me to understand it, but he calls me to trust him. And to bow in worship at his grace and mercy. And John continues to move on. I mean, that, if that in itself, I mean, he makes that phrase, therefore, because it's an issue of the arm of the Lord being revealed. And those who see that revelation with the eyes to see it that God gives, they believe. He says, they, therefore, those who did not believe, though he had done so many signs, could not believe. And look at verse 40. John quotes from Isaiah 6 here. So after making that difficult statement that they could not believe, John quotes from Isaiah 6 to back it up again. Just He wants us to make sure we're not trying to redefine what he's saying here. So lest we try to, to make it about foreknowledge, as, as some have, I want you to note the subject of the action in verse 40. And the New American Standard very literally translates it, He has blinded their eyes and he hardened their heart so that they would not understand with their heart, see with their eyes and turn and be healed. And that's tough, isn't it? I mean, if we're honest, that's tough. But again, think about the context that Isaiah 6 was written. Think about what was happening in that moment when that was revealed to Isaiah. So what moved him to recognize and to record this hard truth? What was the context in which it was revealed to him and made beneficial 
to you and I this morning. Isaiah 6, and you likely are familiar with it or know it well. It is that great throne room scene in the year that King Uzziah died. I saw the Lord, the thrice holy one, high and lifted up with the train of his robe filling the temple. And the burning ones were covering their faces and covering their feet and hovering and were compelled to cry out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And it is that context that moved Isaiah to understand, there is no hope for me apart from divine sovereign grace. Woe is me, and woe is the people whom I live among. So it's seeing God in his holiness, getting a picture, a glimpse of who he is that Isaiah recognized immediately. I could have no fellowship with this one unless he does something for me. And and the context in that was that Isaiah was being called to a ministry that was going to be fruitless. Because he says, you go speak to this people. I will harden their hearts and blind their eyes. It's tough. But what Isaiah understands and what John wants us to see in that is that there is purpose in this. Because, beloved, the Bible never paints a picture of mankind on neutral ground as able to simply believe or or not believe and make up his mind. It makes it abundantly clear that mankind, every man, woman, and child, is dead in sin and condemned before God. That's the picture of us. So this, this hardening that we see here is what we see in the book of Exodus, is it not? This is what we see with God dealing with Pharaoh... And this, this great gospel picture, this, this first exodus of bringing the people out of Egypt to be his very own people, the redemption that took place because of the Passover lamb, this is exactly what we see leading up to that. Because we're told continually in the book of Exodus that Pharaoh hardens his heart before God. Human responsibility. Who's responsible for hardening his heart before God? Pharaoh. And yet it is God who hardens Pharaoh's heart, divine sovereignty. And there's purpose behind that hardening. Exodus 8.15, there's a few verses here. Exodus 8.15, this is what we read. But when Pharaoh saw that there was a respite or a reprieve in the plague there, he hardened his heart and would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Exodus 8.32 But Pharaoh hardened his heart this time also and did not let the people go. But then we come to Exodus 10.1. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants. Here it is. That I may show these signs of mine among them. The hardening of Pharaoh's heart had a purpose. It always does. Whether we can see it or not, it always does. And Paul rejoiced in this truth. Even as we saw, as Brian read Romans 8 this morning, it it hinted at this. And then Paul moves on, he gets into Romans 9, and this is what we read. Romans 9, 14 through 18. He's been talking about this issue, about God's, God's sovereign grace. And he asks this question, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? So he anticipates 
that this is how the human heart moves when we consider this. And he says, by no means. For he says to Moses, referencing the Exodus again, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth, so that he has mercy on whomever whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills for his glory. D.A. Carson helps us greatly here, I think. So this does not come from me. This comes from him. I'm not as smart as D.A. Carson. But listen, he's four things he wants us to keep in mind as we consider this deep truth. Number one, God's sovereignty in these matters is never pitted against human responsibility. I think we see that very clearly in Isaiah and other passages as well. But for our purposes here that John quotes, he makes it clear. Number two, God's judicial hardening, that's what we call it, it's judgment. God is judging when he does this. God's judicial hardening is not presented as the capricious manipulation of an arbitrary potentate. See, that's, that's D.A. Carson. Of an arbitrary potentate cursing morally pure or even morally neutral beings. But it's a holy condemnation of a guilty people who are condemned to do and be what they themselves have chosen. Number three, he says God's sovereignty in these matters can also be a cause for hope. For if he is not sovereign in these areas, there's little point in petitioning him for help. While if he is sovereign, the anguished pleas of the prophets and of believers throughout the history of the church make sense. He is our hope. This is why we pray for our loved ones. Number four, and I love this because I think it starts, it it makes sense. He says, God's sovereign hardening of the people in Isaiah's day, his commissioning of Isaiah to an apparently fruitless ministry, is a stage in, here it is, God's strange work that brings God's ultimate purpose to pass. See, we, we trip up when we think we have to understand the intimacy of the design of what God is doing all the time. When it's an issue for us to trust his design and his work and his power. So the answer to the question, has the gospel failed? We would say hardly. It's all connected to the glory of God in Christ that Isaiah beheld centuries earlier and that Jesus is about to display in blood, flesh, and bone on the cross by leaving the tomb empty for his people. The only way we can say that Jesus or the gospel has failed in some way is if God is not sovereign in this. And while he has opened the eyes and softened the hearts of all people, untold millions have rejected him. But if he is sovereignly saving his people according to his great mercy and grace, the gospel is triumphant. Because here's what we have to understand. All of us. We're in the position of not caring, not wanting, 
and not able to believe until God had mercy on us who are just as undeserving as anyone else to be able to see the grace and glory and majesty and holiness and love of God for us. So you get into verse 42 and 43, as he continues these comments, he says, nevertheless, so, and it's not that he's saying, but still, he wants us to consider something else. He says, but nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him. But what kind of belief was it? Here he defines it. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. So John is not describing here authentic saving faith, but that which he has mentioned several times in his gospel, a believing that eventually leads to leaving when things are tough. So the indictment on them is that they loved what men thought of them more than what God thought about them. So it's, it's the very definition of inauthentic faith. It, it's belief without submission. So it, it's not just an issue of comprehension. So when John says so many didn't believe, he's not saying that they didn't understand what Jesus was doing and who he claimed to be. It's not an issue of comprehending. It's an issue of submitting to. And that's where we have to be careful. Because there may be untold numbers of people sitting in churches across America and around the world today who comprehend who Jesus is. But the submission is not there. And they would find themselves in the same boat as these who, while they believed, did not submit. And you can fill in the reason why, whatever it may be. But why does John bring that up here? After he's discussed this, this deep truth of, of what God sovereignly does and being gracious to us to save us because there is no hope without him. Because they are responsible for their unbelief. He says they, they believed and they didn't confess because they loved the glory of man more than the glory of God. They're responsible for it. Now watch this. I think after John has talked about that and, and discussed it and thought through it in his own mind, he brings about what we read in verses 44 through 50. And again, I would argue that this is, is not Jesus peeking back out of hiding. I mean, he, we were told in the, the last part of verse 36 that he went away and hid himself from them. And I think we don't see him again until he's dealing with his disciples in chapter 13. So this, I believe, is John compiling... Statements that Jesus has made about this gospel. So this is the gospel according to Jesus. To get us to consider and to get his readers to consider what is at stake in this issue of unbelief. Because again, this, this section is bookended by calls to believe. To dive into the issue of human responsibility to repent and believe the gospel. That never goes away. So, it's as if, as if he's reflected upon this and he's moved by compassion to again present, this is the gospel. 
So the first thing we see there, and, and I want you to notice when he gets into this, he pulls up Jesus' teaching that has to deal with the eyes and the heart, which is, which is the issue here, blind eyes and a hard heart. So exactly the issue at hand that Isaiah was dealing with, John pulls up the teaching of Jesus here. Verses 44 through 45, the gospel according to Jesus is an issue of revealing the Father to us. So, and this is more when he says, Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me believes, believes not in me but him who sent me. And whoever sees me sees him who sent me. This is more than Jesus proclaiming his oneness and yet uniqueness from the Father. He is no less than 13 times so far in this gospel used phrases such as believes in me or believes in him or believes in the Son of Man. Again, keeping with the purpose of this book, John is careful to record those calls to believe. Because John's purpose, again, chapter 20, verse 31, these are written so that you may believe, speaking of the signs that Jesus has done. That you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. The call remains. And the fact that Jesus reveals God the Father to us, which he makes clear here, displays the truth that in our natural state, we are separated from him and cannot see him. We do not have eyes to see him. That's just the reality. Think about, if you're in Christ this morning, think about your life before you were converted to Jesus. Think about your ability to see or care who he was. It was not until God interposed his grace in your life that he flipped the switch and you could see. That's just the testimony of who we are. None of us can claim that we were smart enough to look at the evidence and figure out and make a, make a decision, a verdict about what Jesus was saying about himself. But the gospel according to Jesus is also a matter of giving light. Look at verses 46 through 48. It says, I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The words that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. Now, John continually uses, in the gospel and in his writings, images of light and darkness. And it's, it's more than just about the issue of, of comparing you know, purity and evil. It's about the futility of trying to walk, trying to make your way through life in darkness without the light of God telling you and showing you what life is intended to be, why you live it, and to whose glory you should live it for, and how you navigate this life. Jesus himself in John 8, which we've been through with Pastor Jeff at the Feast of Tabernacles, said this. He said, again... I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. It is essential that we have light to see. So I think the fact that Jesus is light to us uncovers the truth that we walk in darkness and cannot find our way. Thus, we need a Savior. We need someone to show us the way because we cannot see it. And then verses 49 through 50, the gospel according to Jesus is an issue of perfect obedience. 
you catch the level of obedience that Jesus demonstrates when he, when he speaks the words we find in verses 49 through 50? He says, I've not, I've not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. So Jesus makes it clear that all he has spoken has been in complete obedience to the Father to the end that those who hear him would be saved. And this, this display of the level of obedience in Jesus is astounding because his life was so saturated. Obedience so saturated his life that it worked its way down to the level of the words he spoke for our salvation. So the fact that Jesus displays complete obedience, even to the level of saying exactly what the Father has told him, shows us that we need someone not only to communicate the perfect will of God to us, which he does and, and did, but to be perfectly obedient on our behalf. If we would have fellowship with God, if we would have that communion with God that Jesus has had for eternity, that he demonstrated as he walked the earth, it is a fellowship that is founded on complete and utter obedience, which we would call perfect righteousness. Never crossing, never offending, never ignoring God's righteous commands on our life. And that's bad news for us. Because again, if you're like me, you realize, I don't do that. It's a struggle. But here's the good news for us. Second Corinthians 5.21 For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is what the theologians call the great exchange. Our sin is placed on Christ. His perfect righteousness is freely given to us. And this, this blows my mind. It blows my mind to think that in the counsel of God's will, when he looks at me, when it comes to accounting how I stand before him, he sees the perfect righteousness of his son. That he claims that I am something that in practice I am not yet. That's why I need sanctification. Because he will make me and he will make you what he has proclaimed you to be in reality. He's proclaimed that in reality we are perfectly righteous. That should stagger you. And in practice he is working to that end by his spirit through his word to sanctify you. So John wants us to consider this. I mean, again, that call to repent and believe is still there. In, in light of the, the, the weight of what he has talked about with unbelief, he immediately turns around and says, look, this is what Jesus says. This is what he says that he reveals the Father to us, and we need that. He opens our eyes. He gives light to us. We desperately need that. 
He's been perfectly obedient on our behalf, and we desperately need that. There is no hope for us apart from these things. And in order for us to legitimately take issue with this passage, we would first have to demonstrate how God is duty-bound to be gracious and merciful to anyone. Because I cannot prove that he was duty-bound to be gracious and merciful to me. I know me better than anybody. And there's nothing in me that moved him to do that. And this is the heart of the better question, isn't it? The question was not what explains the unbelief of so many, but what explains the belief of any. It is the grace of God. So John's purpose in bringing us face to face with this deep theological truth right in the middle of his gospel is not to lock our brains up or cause internal conflict but to get us to bow the knee to the wisdom and knowledge and unmatched grace of God. Because what we should see is that this is our experience. What explains the belief of so many is that the arm of the Lord has been revealed. Why do any believe? He shows himself. So my prayer is that we rejoice in that fact. We rejoice in the answer to the better question is that God reveals his arm to us. Because remember, the reality that Scripture so vividly paints for us is that man is dead in trespasses and sin, Ephesians 2, 1 through 4. He's unable to save himself, Ephesians 2, 8. He's unable to apprehend and comprehend spiritual truth, 1 Corinthians 2, 14. And as a result, is non-responsive to God, all of his own doing. And God will either blind and harden in judgment or he will enlighten and soften in grace and mercy. So rejoice. And if you don't know Jesus this morning, the call remains. It will remain. Repent and believe the gospel. Your only hope is this one who has revealed the Father, who has given light to see and has been perfectly obedient to God's commands on behalf of his people. And did you catch, you probably noticed that verses 47 through 48, I didn't spend any time on those really, and that was intentional because I wanted to talk about it here. When Jesus says, if anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. I think that's, that's the central phrase in that section. The one who rejects me and does not receive my word has a judge. The word that I've spoken will judge him on the last day. Because we read that and go, well, the Bible does paint Jesus as judging, coming to judge the quick and the dead. You read the book of Revelation, you see a righteous judge. So what is he saying here? He says, I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. This is his first advent, his first coming. Jesus is saying, I am here this first time. I am here. I've been born of a woman, born of the virgin to save the world. To provide what is needed for lost and dead mankind. And then he goes on to say, the word that I spoke will judge him on the last day. That's his second coming. The judge, the judge speaks, he renders a verdict, right? He says here, the words as I have spoken will judge. So Jesus, Jesus is coming to judge. And it reminds me, as we think about the call remaining, repents and believe, it reminds me 
of where Brother Jeff ended last Sunday. In verse 36, the first half, he says, While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. And Brother Jeff's point there, and pointing out what John's point was, time is short. Repent and believe the gospel. This is the call to us. That never changes. That's why I said at the beginning of this message, please keep in mind that the call to repent and believe does not change. Deep truths that we can't begin to to really pin down in our neat theological systems do not change the reality of what God is calling us to do. It does not change the reality that He is ultimately and meticulously sovereign, yet we are humanly responsible for what we do. The way I've heard it explained that was, has been helpful to me is the realm of God's decrees and the realm of God's commands which are in harmony with one another. We live in the realm of God's decrees. Whatsoever comes to pass, He has ordained. We live under the realm of God's command. We are humanly responsible to do as He has commanded us. And those fit together gloriously and perfectly in His providence. I don't know about you, but that bends my knees. Because I can't figure him out. I can't put him in a box. What God would be worth sharing with anyone who you could pin to a wall and go, that's him. He's beyond description, isn't he? It's glorious. This is a glorious truth given for us. So as I struggled with this, and, and, you know, I sort of made, I didn't make fun of Jeff. I poked fun at him because we were talking about this issue. I said, brother, that's a, that's a deep passage. I mean, theologically, it's just deep to, to think about and wrestle with, it, it, to, to think about preaching it. Where, what do you call the congregation to do? And I said, you know, I wanted chapter 11. You know, the raising of Lazarus, that great Lazarus, that great picture of the gospel being called by Jesus, which again is a divine calling. He says, come. But I said, you gave me chapter 9 and then the hardest part of chapter 12. Thank you. But as I struggled with, okay, what do, we, what do we leave here with this morning as we thought about the weight of this? It's, it's just simply glorifying God for who he is, for his matchless grace and mercy on us who have believed because why aren't we just like the ones who saw so many signs and miracles yet did not believe because God has revealed his arm to us. And that is not a call for arrogance. It is a call for abject humility because there's nothing in us that moved him to say, let me show you who I am. It's just simply because he loved us. Where would we be without his grace. I shudder to think. And it's because he's sovereign in this area that I would say, you pray and share with all you have. Because he is sovereign. And he has graciously not only ordained the ends, but the means, and that is to use you for the sake of his glory. And he will sanctify you in the process, and you will see him do amazing things 
through the preaching and sharing of his word and the testimony of your life, of this God who showed you his strong arm. And you'll be shocked at what he does. So as we get ready to move in next week into chapter 13, and and Justin is excited to talk about foot washing, we're going to see this God demonstrate his grace and mercy with everything he has for us. So leave with that today. Leave with just this, this humble adoration and praise for the God who has shown you who he is. And pray for those you know that do not see him yet. Let's pray. Father, this morning, the prayer is simple as we come to the end of this passage. And Father, I know that (laughs) there is nothing good. There is no hope of anything good coming from me rambling up here unless you move by your Spirit through your Word in the hearts and minds of those who are present this morning. Father, the prayer is that you would reveal your arm. That you would soften hardened hearts. That you would open blind eyes. And that those who do not know you would see you. Would run to Jesus. Would exercise repentance and faith because of your great mercy. And Father, those of us who know you this morning, who have known you for years, who have walked with you, Would you plant this truth deep in our hearts in such a way that it moves us to worship? It moves us to rejoice in the power of who you are, that you are mighty to save, and that Jesus came to save the world. Father, we ask it in his glorious name. Amen.